Let's go ahead and get started with a word of prayer, if we could, please. Our Father, we are so grateful for the opportunity we have to come together as the body of Christ and to study your word. And Lord, we anticipate what you will speak to us from your word this morning. Uh, We thank you for the opportunity to freely express our beliefs. Lord, I pray that you will uh, use your word to penetrate our hearts and help us to think rightly about uh, what you have written, what you've revealed. May all that we discuss be pleasing to you. May your name be uplifted in praise. For we pray in Christ's name this morning. Amen. Okay, this is week number five in our study of eschatology. And we've said several times over the last few weeks that we believe in the literal reign of Jesus Christ on the physical earth for a thousand years. And we believe this reign will come at the end of the Great Tribulation, which of course ends with the slaughter uh, on near Mount Megiddo. Um, we tend to call it Armageddon. And Armageddon is an okay term. It's just a bad translation of the original term. Um, but nevertheless, it's become synonymous in our day with the end of the age. So that's all. Um, this, this plane where this battle would take place is not really a battle. It's a slaughter. Jesus Christ just with his tongue speaks and all these people that are armed against him are destroyed. Uh, Napoleon said of that plane that it's the greatest battlefield on the planet. It's the greatest that he had ever seen anyway. And so there will be a great battle there. There have been many ancient battles on that field, but that's all a discussion for another day much later in this series. What we want to talk about this morning is that because we believe Jesus Christ reigns and that he reigns near Mount Megiddo, really in Jerusalem, that there has to be a physical land where he is reigning, where he is seated on the throne of David. And so the discussion of land becomes very important um, dependent upon your view of eschatology. And so, since we hold that Christ does literally reign and sits on a throne that's on the earth, then the Lamb becomes more important to us. So, it's, it's worth our time to walk through and see what God originally promised to Abram and to his descendants about the land, and did those promises ever get fulfilled in ancient days? And so, that's what we're doing. We're walking through the book of Genesis to see where God first gave Abram these promises and then how that um, went on to the descendants who came after him. And last week we looked in Genesis 12, which is where the first promise is given, where God promises really unconditionally to Abram that he will give him a land, that he'll have many descendants, and that all the nations will be blessed through him. And so, really a threefold promise given to Abram there. Um, And then later, in that same chapter, in chapter 12, God identifies the land as the land of Canaan. And then we went down to Genesis 
chapter 13, where again, God talks to Abram about his myriad of descendants. They'll be like the, either the stars of the sky or the sands that can't be counted. Um, so he's going to have many, many descendants. And then God again talks to him about all the nations will be blessed through him. And then we move down to Genesis chapter 15, where um, God says much about Abram and his descendants, and again makes an unconditional covenant with uh, Abram and his descendants. The land's not mentioned there, but it's just a continuation of what God has been saying. And then last week we ended in chapter 17, and in the first eight verses, we saw where God speaks again about this everlasting covenant, never to come to an end, that he has made with Abram. And it again refers to the land, and it again refers to Abram and his many descendants that will come after him. And so God has established and repeated multiple times by the time you get to chapter 17, this unconditional promise to Abram about himself and his descendants and about land. And so here in chapter 17, we talked about it just briefly last week, is also the chapter where God establishes the covenant of circumcision, which is the first thing that Abram is supposed to do. And of course, Abram... Um, is obedient and immediately it says that same day when God gave him that command that he circumcised all the males who were in the camp. And so Abram obeys God. Previously he had believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now here he takes actions and this is the covenant that Israel is to have with God perpetually that all their males and all their males that they would bring in, all the foreigners who would become um, new citizens would um, all be circumcised. And so this is the covenant that God has established with him. But what I want to look at is down in chapter 17 and beginning in verse 11 is where we'll pick up today and kind of continue this promise this covenant that God has made with Abram and see how it gets established with those who come after Abram. Now it's in chapter 17 is where God changes Abram's name to Abraham and when he changes Sarah's name, Sarai's name to Sarah. And so then down in verse 11, just want to read through here. Chapter 17, verse 11 in Genesis. I guess I don't want to read this part. This is the establishment of the circumcision covenant, 11 through 15. And then behind that in 15 and 16. Then God said to Abraham, As your Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Now this is the first time 
where God has told Abraham that Sarah is going to be the one to bear um, his son that will be his heir. And, you know, this is perplexing to Abraham because back in verse 1, I think it is now, when Abram was 99 years old. So Abram is 99, his wife Sarah is 90, and even in those days where people lived a lot longer, that was beyond childbearing days. Okay, so Abram has this response that I guess we would all have too. In verse 17, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Okay? Abram fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? Impossible, right? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? So Abram, I mean, does he believe God or does he not believe God here when it's first spoken to him? He's he's very skeptical, right? Um, Because that's just not physically possible, he believes. And so he falls on his face and he asks God um, to bless Ishmael. Now Ishmael at this time is 13 years old, I believe. I think he was born when Abraham was 86. And so here he is, 13 years old. And Abram asks that God bless him. And so God talks with Abraham here. And then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael may live before you. And then God answers him very quick and he says, No, but Sarah will bear a son. So you have, you have Abraham asking God to bless his firstborn, who is Ishmael, but who was born through Hagar, Sarah's handmaid. And God says, no, that's not the way it's going to be. So it's not like it's questionable here what God says. I mean, this is explicit, very plain language, easy for us to understand that God says, no, it's not going to be through Ishmael, but God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear a son, and you will call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. So you hear God makes it explicitly clear that it's not Ishmael, but the everlasting covenant, never to end, will be through Isaac, his son. Now, why did God tell them to call his name Isaac. What does Isaac's name mean? Laughter, right? Because not only does Abram fall down laughing, I mean, he's overcome with hysteria here, but later in chapter 18, I think it's verse 12, when Sarah hears the promise for the first time, apparently her husband didn't tell her, then she falls down in laughter. And you remember the angel hears her, the angel who is really Jesus Christ, I believe, pre-incarnate, hears her laughing. And she says, I didn't laugh. And he says, oh, but you did laugh. I heard you. And so both of them are like, this just can't happen. 
and but yet it does happen and they do conceive a child and his name is called Isaac and so you have it here explicit in chapter 17 that God promises a son and that it will be Isaac who the everlasting covenant is given to. Now, God will say more to Isaac later and we'll see that to confirm exactly what it means that Isaac will be the heir of the promise that's given to Abraham. Now, God answers Abraham's request for him to bless Ishmael. I mean, you know, Ishmael, you don't know what he really believes or what he thinks about all of this, but you got to believe that when Sarah sends Ishmael and his mother away, that there has to be some hard feelings there. Because for 13 years, he thought he was the heir. Uh, I'm sure Abraham talked to him about being the heir because that's what Abraham thought was going to happen. And God does bless Ishmael by giving him, um, he's very fruitful, he says, and he gives him 12 princes, which means 12 sons. And later in chapter 25, we even have the names of all the descendants of Ishmael and not just the 12 sons, but their sons and their sons and generations of sons. And um, Ishmael um, goes away because Sarah sends them away. And later, you know, to Isaac is born Jacob and Esau or said in right order, Esau and Jacob. And it's Esau who goes to Ishmael and marries his daughter. And so there you have the beginning of the kingdom of Edom, the Edomites, who are throughout history the arch rivals of Israel. And so it comes from Ishmael and then from Esau who are both the firstborn children. If you think about it, that Ishmael is the firstborn of Abraham, Esau is the firstborn of Isaac, and neither of them are the heirs of the promise. So they feel like, and and later when um, Jacob has Ephraim and Manasseh come to him, you remember that he again crosses his hands and blesses the secondborn not the fir- with the highest blessing and then the sec- firstborn with the lower blessing. And so this is just God's way of showing us it's not always going to happen the way that we think it's going to happen. That he's orchestrating what he desires to happen in his creation. And here we have it explicit that it's not the firstborn but the secondborn. Now this is why If you look at Muslim theology, this is why the Muslims believe that they replaced Israel. Because they have 12 tribes also. And they believe their 12 tribes replaced the 12 tribes, original tribes of Israel. Because Israel did not obey God. And there's no disputing that Israel did not obey God. But nowhere in the scripture... 
is the blessing changed from Isaac to Ishmael? Nowhere is that expressed in the, in the scripture. God does bless Ishmael with a lot of children, but, and they become a great nation, and God says that they will. But the promise of the everlasting covenant that was given to Abram is never changed to Ishmael. But they believe it was. They believe that Muhammad is a direct descendant of Ishmael, but there are no records. So they can't prove that like we can through the scripture with Isaac and his descendants. We know the the line that leads to Jesus Christ. They can't prove that Muhammad was, but they assume since he came from Arabia that he is of that line. But he may be, he may not be. There's no evidence of that. But they have to believe that in order for Muhammad to then be significant in their history and to be the one who gives the Quran. Actually, it's not Muhammad who gives the Quran. It's the people who come after him, the next generation, who theoretically are quoting him. Or maybe it's secondhand, maybe it's thirdhand. Um, the Hadith actually says that, that I heard someone say that they heard that Muhammad said. And sometimes it's even four layers deep where I heard that someone said that Muhammad one day when he was around, someone heard him say, you know, and it's just, it's not, it's not like the scriptures which were given by God. And yet they, this is what they cling to. And this is why they believe they've replaced um, the Israelites. Now, this is all in the plan of God. We understand that. Um, We go on down and we see again, the, the question is this, how significant is the promise of land in the mind of Abraham? That would be one of the things that you would want to ask. Did he understand what God said when he stood him on the high place and he said, look to the north, look to the south, look to the east, look to the west, all this land I'm promising to you. Well, as you go on, you'll see it down in Genesis chapter 22. This is the, uh, you'll remember this story. This is where Abraham takes his son Isaac and he goes up on the mountain to to offer Isaac as a sacrifice because that's what God asked him to do. And yet, as he begins to go up the mountain, he leaves his servants and he says, we'll go sacrifice and we, meaning he and Isaac, will come back down to you. So he believed that he was going to kill Isaac and then God was going to resurrect him was what was in Abraham's mind. But that's not what God does. Um, He's willing to offer him. An angel calls out to him and stops him as he's about to plunge the knife into his son. And so that's happened in this chapter. And then you get down to verse 15. And the angel speaks for a second time after first stopping him. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. And said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed 
as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now he doesn't say anything about the land there, but what he does repeat two of the promises to Abram, Abraham and says that your seed are going to be like the sands of the seashore or the stars of the sky, which you can't count all of them. We think we can count them all, but we really can't, right? We can't even see them all. But nevertheless, we are arrogant and think we can. And then he also says that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through your descendants. So God repeating this promise or parts of it multiple times. And then um, you go on down to chapter 24. Very significant that Abraham now wants to get a wife for his son Isaac. Isaac is about 40 years old at this time. And he wants to get him a wife. And so he says, we're not going to take a wife from Canaan. And he sends his servant back to his homeland, which would be Canaan for Abraham. And I think it's Abraham's brother's daughter, I believe is the way that goes, who is Rebekah. And so the servant goes back and he finds Rebekah and he brings her back to be the wife of Abraham. Now, I'm sorry, of Isaac. Abraham, it's been 65 years since God originally promised um, to Abraham to, uh, that threefold promise of descendants, land, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. That happened when Abraham was 25, 75 years old. Isaac was born when Abraham was 100 years old. Isaac marries Rebekah when he's 40 years old. So you got the 25 and then the 40. So it's been 65 years since God gave this promise to Abraham. And yet Abraham still remembers it, still believes it. Um, Look in verse 7, what he says. This is Abraham talking to his servant. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth and who spoke to me and who swore to me saying, to your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you will take a wife for my son from there. What's Abraham think? This is 65 years later. Abraham is 140 years old. What does he believe about the land? I mean, what is in the mind of Abraham? There's no doubt that he believes that God promised him a land and that he's going to inherit that land. He, even so much that he sends his servant back to there to get a wife for his son instead of taking one of the many wives that could, would have been right there in the land where he was at. So 65 years later, 
there's no doubt that Abraham believes that when God spoke to him about a physical land, he meant a physical land. Now, as we talked about when we were trying to kind of introduce what people believe, if you believe that the church has replaced Israel, then this promise that Abraham believed was to him and his descendants about land becomes nullified. Because it's not given to the Israelites, it's given to the church. And so, is that what Abraham understood? You'd have to say no. That's clearly not what Abraham understood. And then they would just simply say, well, Abraham misunderstood. <laughs> okay? <laughs> I don't think so. But nevertheless, that's the... I mean, you have to. If you believe the church has replaced Abraham, then you have to believe that Abraham misunderstood. So, they allow their theology to drive what the Scripture says instead of allowing the Scriptures to drive their theology. And we would prefer to allow the Scriptures to tell us what we should believe. Do you want to say something? Uh, just, just think about it for a moment. I mean, this is one of the points really to ponder in our faith, right? Because if you go down that path David, you just described, you undermine the scriptures. You, you can't trust the scriptures anymore. Right. You undermine God's character because he's a God of trickery, of kind of shell games that he allows to be played with people who believe these promises with their lives. Yeah. And when you undermine those two things, God help you. And now I will be quick to say that those who believe covenant theology say they trust the scriptures. That's what they say. <laughs> okay, do they really? Would be my question. I mean, you have to explain this and it's Abraham misunderstood. I think that they have a rationalization for it this way. The New Testament statements about how not all who are of Israel are Israel yeah I mean there are there are statements in Romans that say not everyone who's a Jew is a Jew and that's true because not all the Jews believe God and that's what he's saying not that you're not an ethnic Jew but you're not one who believes and then he makes it very clear over in chapter 11 of Romans that the Gentiles have been grafted in after the original branches have been broken off. But then right behind that, he gives the promise that they're going to believe again. So, I, he does use himself as a... Yeah, I mean, Paul, I guess, um, other than the apostles, uh, the original apostles, um, the disciples, uh, one of the first Jews to believe. Um, so, yeah, um, they have their rationalizations. I just don't think it holds water. I think it's just full of, of, of rationalizations. Now, this promise is, remains explicit. And in chapter 26, you'll see where this covenant is passed on to Isaac, almost verbatim. God gives the same covenant that he gave Isaac 
to Abram. Originally, he changed his name to Abraham to Isaac. So in Genesis 26, beginning in verse 1, now there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine that occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar, to Ambimelech, king of the Philistines. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens, and will give your descendants all these lands, and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Almost exactly what he said to Abraham. God now here repeats to Isaac. Speaking to Isaac, God himself says that you're going to have many descendants, that this land on which you sojourn, stay here, I'm going to give it to your descendants, and then finally that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. It's right there. The threefold promise that he originally unconditionally gave to Abraham, he now unconditionally gives to Isaac. So, is God just now leading the next generation on and giving them promises that are not really for them? It just doesn't make sense because it's so explicit that God does that. It even becomes more explicit in chapter 28 where God, you know, Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau being the firstborn, Jacob being the secondborn, grabbing at his heel. And by the providence of God, he says that the older will serve the younger. And you, you know the story, Esau selling his birthright to Abraham. Um, God then um, having nothing to really to do with Esau. Matter of fact, if you go to the New Testament, you know this which is hard to accept, but nevertheless, Romans chapter 9 says it. It says, Jacob whom I loved and Esau whom I hated. And you have to wrestle with that somewhere in your heart to figure out what is God really saying there. And it's that Isaac, I mean, that um, Jacob was the chosen one and Esau was not. And Esau, like I said, goes and marries Ishmael's daughter, begins the land of the Edomites, uh, is really the king of the Edomites for a while. And those are the people whom, as you read down through all the stories and all the wars that Israel has, the Edomites are right there in the middle of it all. And they're one of their arch enemies. And a matter of fact, I'd have to go and look at this for, and find it again. The land of Edom during the Millennial Kingdom burns. It continues to burn during the Millennial Kingdom. And because it's a desolate land and God totally destroys it and while he renews the earth, the land of Edom is still uninhabited, still burns. 
So I'll have to find that for you one day later on when we're over in Ezekiel. Um, but it's there in living color. Uh, preached Romans 9 here, sort of. I picked out pieces of it when we were talking about the sovereignty of God. And what I love about that passage is, you know, it gets more difficult as you go deeper into Romans 9. Um, He gives examples of people whom God did not choose um, over and over, the, the last one being Pharaoh. And could it be that God would harden Pharaoh's heart? And yes, he did. But Pharaoh also hardened his own heart. And if you look in the scriptures, you'll see that. But I love Paul's answer that he ultimately gives. And it's this. Who are you to question God about what is fair and what is not fair? You don't have that right. You don't have that perspective. You don't have enough wisdom or knowledge. He's the potter. He can do with the clay whatever he well pleases. And, and, and that's Paul's answer. Paul doesn't try to answer it any other way other than he's the potter, we're the clay. The potter can do whatever he wants to with his clay. And that's the answer out of Scripture. And so you don't try to go any further to answer that other than a sovereign, holy God who is good in every way yet people still go unchosen by his pre-designed plan. And you, that's what you have to come to grips with. And are you going to believe God or are you not going to believe him? And that's probably the most difficult piece because to believe that, you then believe um, that God is sovereign in the salvation of men which is really the pinnacle of almost all of theology, that God is sovereign even in the salvation of men. And that's where people divide. That's, that's the cutting edge of what people believe. And, you know, um, over in John chapter 1, where he says it's not by the will of the one being saved, It's not by the will of the people who are testifying to him. But it's by the will of God alone that a man is saved. And he says that explicitly clear. I don't know how people could miss that. Because 
They simply don't want to believe that. They want to believe that men have a choice in whether they're saved or not. And I do agree that salvation is offered indiscriminately. And I do believe that a man must believe in order to be saved. But I likewise believe that that faith is a gift from God. And that's, the, that's really the cutting edge of all of theology. Or is, are you going to believe that or are you not? And it's, I'm not going to say it's an easy thing. But you've got to go all the way back to all this. The separation from God that leaves us in a state that until, unless in Esau, I mean, Ishmael and Esau are two great examples. Right. I mean, if they, in Israel, uh, that is not Israel, is the highest example of if, if we were going to have the ability to believe in a God of, of all the things God has done for Israel, would Israel not be that nation? Right? And it, it's just. If God doesn't intervene in the condition of man, then there's no hope. All right, so we have the the threefold promise given to Abraham. And then we have Ishmael and Isaac. God clearly says it's Isaac. And then here we have the explicit promise of God given to Isaac. And now we'll see the explicit, uh, as it goes on, the explicit promise given to his secondborn, Jacob. So that's down in chapter 28, beginning in like verse 10. And this is Jacob, the grandson of Abraham. And then then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and placed it under his head and lay down in that place. Sounds comfortable, doesn't it? Get your rock and lay down. (laughs) He had a dream and behold, no wonder he had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth. And you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Pretty explicit, right? The same threefold promise, this land on which you're sleeping with a rock under your head, and to the east, the west, the north, and the south, I'll give it to your descendants, and your descendants will be multiplied, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through your descendants. So the exact same promise that he gave to Abraham that he repeated to Isaac, God now repeats it to Jacob. And so this is some, I have it written down here somewhere. I'm trying to get the years right. I 
I believe is, come on, I know I've got it written down. Maybe I don't. What I have written down is that Israel, Jacob's name is changed to Israel. He dies when he's 140, I think. It's 240 years since Abraham gave the promise to, um, since God gave the promise to Abraham. So it's been a long, long time since this promise was originally given. And look in chapter 35, just so we can see it in Scripture, that God is the one who changed Jacob's name to Israel and then gives him 12 sons. So, in chapter 35, verse 9, then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padaram, and he blessed him and said to him, Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you, and will give the land to your descendants after you. So he says that kings are going to come from you, and that nations are going to come from you, and I'm going to give to those people the land that I promised to Abraham and Isaac. Now, if you're Jacob, there's only one way you can take this. And that is that you're going to have a lot of children and that God has picked out a piece of land and property that he's going to give to them. And that that's where they're going to live. I don't see any other way that you could take this. And so, we have it given to Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob twice. God gives him this promise. And it's clear that since he changed his name to Israel, that it's the descendants of Israel, the nation of Israel, who are the inheritors of the land. Now, when he's about to die, chapter 48, this is Israel about to die. It's been approximately 240 years since God first gave the promise to Abram. 240 years later, three generations, and here is what Israel believes about the promise of God. Chapter 48. Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. When it was told Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel collected his strength and sat up in bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me, and he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make your company of peoples, and will give this land to your descendants 
after you for an everlasting possession. Now, why does Jacob tell Israel, why does Israel say that to his son Joseph? Why? Why, What would be the possibility of why he's telling Joseph that? I mean, where are they? They're in the land of Egypt, right? Well, just outside of Egypt, really, because of the famine. That's where they moved all their families, and that's where they lived the rest of their days, was just outside of Egypt, the land of Goshen. And so the reason I believe that Jacob tells Joseph this, Joseph is obviously the chief, right? He's still second in command only to Pharaoh in all of Egypt. He tells him that because he wants him to understand this is not where we're going to live forever. The land that's been promised is not here, is back in Canaan. And he wants Joseph to understand that and to know that. So he explicitly tells him, this is at the end of Israel's life. He's lived for over a hundred years since God gave him the promise about the land. And now here at the very end of his life, I mean, he dies in the next few verses. He still remembers that promise and he still wants his sons to understand that promise. So, did Israel think that was going to go to somebody else? No way. I mean, why on his deathbed would he repeat it? Because it's the most important thing to him. They had about 300 years left to go. Oh yeah, they had more than 300 years left to go in Egypt. So by then, the Israelites couldn't even remember. That's right. But they do remember but it's only because of Moses that they remember. We will get there very quickly here. Um, So, of course, it's Jacob, Israel, who has 12 sons, and we have all their names, and then Joseph has his two sons. And this is the passage that's a little humorous, that they bring Manasseh and Ephraim, Joseph's sons, to Israel to be blessed, and he crosses his hands. And he blesses the secondborn above the firstborn. And this is why when you get to the promised land, you have 13 tribes and not 12. You have 11 and two half-tribes. And that's the way they're described as half-tribes. You have the tribe of Manasseh and you have the tribe of Ephraim. So, and to Joseph... Because he had two sons that were going to become tribes of Israel, um, God makes provision for that. I don't know that I have it written down here. But Joseph actually gets an extra portion of the inheritance because two of his sons are going to be heirs. And so each one gets their own land. And we'll see that as we get into um, the book of Joshua. Now, so the land is still very important to him. He makes provision for Manasseh and for Ephraim. So he's thinking about the physical land. I mean, he's got to be. Otherwise, he wouldn't be repeating this here. Now, Joseph is the 11th son 
of Jacob. Um, you have Joseph and then you have Benjamin, the last two. And you know, God is just in everything he does, but the 12 sons of Jacob were born by four different women. I think it's six and then three or four. And yeah, Leah, his first wife, you remember the trickery and all of that. He had six and then I think it's, is it two and two? There's four women though. Two, two and two. Okay. Uh, And the last two are Rebecca's in her old age, Joseph and Benjamin. Rachel in her in her old age, um, and so you have God establishing the nation here, but then if you read the very beginning of Exodus, it'll talk about the twelve sons, but then it'll say that someone came over Egypt, new leader, new Pharaoh, who didn't know Joseph's name, simply meaning he didn't know about. Uh, Joseph being seconding, well, he may have known about it, but he didn't count that for anything. And the Hebrews, pretty quick, Joseph became the second in command uh, of Egypt when he was 30 years old. He died, I believe, when he was 140. So the first 100 years, everything's good because Joseph is still there. He's still in command. And, but then... The next Pharaoh looks and sees all the Hebrews and said, they're becoming greater than we are, so we have to make them our slaves. And they do. And so we know the story. Uh, matter of fact, it was predicted way back in chapter 15 of Genesis, right? We looked at this, I believe, last week. Genesis chapter 15, down in verse 13, when God was first giving the promises to Abraham, God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. So that's the the captivity in in, uh, Egypt, where they're there for, you know, their 400 years. And Exodus is really a story about the first 80 years of Moses' life is what is the story about. Because Moses is the central feature. Um, God does do all the plagues. They do come out of, um, out of Egypt. And then about the first year of the 40 years is detailed in the last chapters of Exodus where they give the offering, they erect the temple. Um, Moses goes up on the mountain, all of that in about the first year of the 40 years out in, um, outside of the captivity in Egypt. So we're, when, you, when you get to the end of the 40 years, you're 440 years ahead of the end of the book of Genesis. So you're, you're way out there, and it was 240 years when Israel died, later when, Jacob, when Joseph dies. 
So you're at least like 680 years or so when you get to the end of wandering in the desert. And so Exodus details the first year. Leviticus is, details about a month when God gave the Levitical law and then Moses repeated it to everybody. Numbers covers about 39 years of wandering in the desert. And then Deuteronomy is about a month when Moses again gives the, um, all the law to the people and they all sit and hear him. And you have the song of Moses where he blesses them. And then you have the curses of Moses where he says what your curses are going to be. And then you get to the end of the book of um, Deuteronomy where Moses dies. But I want to show you something at the end when Moses dies. And then we're going to go back and look at a couple of things in Deuteronomy. But at the very end of Deuteronomy, chapter 31. Now this is a long time in the future since God originally gave the promise to Abraham. And so down in verse 14, God speaking to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the, last, the time for you to die is near. Call Joshua and present yourselves at the tent of meeting that I may commission him. You know, I actually wanted to jump ahead because of our time. Look over in chapter 34. This is what I, and then we're going to go back and look at some of these things. The first four verses of chapter 34. Now Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, the top of Pishka, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead and as far as Dan, and all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah as far as the western sea. Now this is the names that these lands are going to have. Because these are the sons of Israel. And the Negev and the plain and the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to him, look at this, this is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So here's God, 680 years later, after the promise has been given, who knows how many generations, and God is taking Moses up on the mountain and saying, this is the land which I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So in the mind of God, is it a specific land? You'd have to say yes. Here it is, Moses, look at it. This is the specific land that I gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the mind of Abraham, in the mind of Isaac, in the mind of Jacob, in the mind of God. It is a physical land. It's a specific physical land. And boundaries have been given in other passages that I didn't bother to go to. You know, from the river um, Euphrates and um, to the Great River, which I guess would be, I'm not sure. Um, the Nile? 
it's not the Nile River, it's the tributaries. But um, anyway, the reason I wanted to go here, and we're going to look at more because we're going to go into the book of Joshua, is that the land is prominent in our theology. And that the land was promised to Israel and we believe it is still promised to Israel. And I'm going to go into Jacob, I mean into Joshua, and what I want to show you, even though it was parceled out, Israel never took the land that God promised to them. And it's explicit. And so we'll look at those passages. It was parceled out, but they never conquered it. They never lived there. And so we want to see that from the scriptures so that we realize that this promise that God is stating to Abraham was not fulfilled in the reign of Joshua. Because there are many who would say, oh yeah, they took that in the book of Joshua. And I think it's explicitly clear they did not. So that's where we're headed. Okay, thanks for your time this morning.